0: Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. Today's guest is a musician who, unlike so many other talented performers and songwriters, has managed to carve out a successful career wholly in music.
1: Many miles we're yet to travel,
0: with more than 5 million downloads on Spotify. There's
1: a road that
0: we must follow. You may recognise John Allen's track Going Home from Land Rover Ads. The singer-songwriter was discovered by Dire Straits frontman Mark Knopfler in 2006 and has created a niche as a live performer, supporting acts like Seal, Dionne Warwick, Damien Rice, Katie Tunstall, and Mark Knopfler himself. He's back on the road performing tracks from his fifth studio album, Meanwhile, as well as doing gigs with 60s icon Lulu. I'm delighted to say I'm with John in West London. John, it's been a long time since I've seen you. How the devil are you?
2: I'm okay, yeah. uh, Surviving, you know keeping life simple, going for walks in the morning, that kind of stuff. You know, how are you?
0: I'm very well, and it's great to see you back out on the road again. That must feel terrific after the last 18 months we've had.
2: It does. Yeah, we did a gig. We did kind of a big gig in London about a week ago, which was utterly terrifying, which, and I gave myself huge pressure. So I just feel like I need a few more to kind of <laughs> let the, sort of get the butterflies calmed down a little bit. But yeah, it's great to be in front of an audience again.
0: Did it feel quite strange walking out there again?
2: Yeah, it did feel strange, but it kind of felt like It felt very emotional. People were crying and it really wasn't that bad. And um, (laughs) I think that in a strange way, the audience were just happy that they were there. You know, so just to hear some music was like a bonus for them. I think it's been a pretty horrendous couple of years for people. So it's great to have some sort of normality.
0: One of the venues that you've been in in the last couple of weeks was the Jazz Cafe. Yeah. Uh, Give us an idea of the set list and what kinds of things you were playing.
2: Well, it was a combination of the hits. I'm using quotation marks here, and some new material off this new record. So we did about five tracks off the new album. We sort of pulled out all the stops and we put a brass section in there. And so we, yeah, it was a, it was a great night.
0: And is it true that you've not really ever had another job as such?
2: Not really. I'm very, I have no fallback position whatsoever. I worked in a edge of the pier kind of situation, basically serving ice creams. And I got, I, I was too generous with the scoops, you know, oh. and that, that didn't last too long. You know, too, I was pretty... Going into her profit margin, this woman. Um, so yeah, I did that. My parents had a bookshop, a couple of bookshops. So I was a very bad guy behind a desk selling books. But yeah, utter, I mean, I, I got into a sort of covers band when I was a teenager. So it's all, this is it. No fallback.
1: Wow.
0: Well, actually, let's just go there. Let's leap backwards first, if okay. you like. I don't really know much about your background. We've had lots of lunches and drinks over the years, but I never really worked out how you've become and how you've learned to play all these amazing instruments. Where did it all come from?
2: I'm actually realizing this quite a bit uh, with friends and with other people. There is this sense that you feel like you just discover things and actually your parents, <laughs> guess what? They sort of curate everything in your life and they kind of push you towards things. My mum and dad are kind of Amdram people. They're thesps. They're kind of, they art lovers. They weren't necessarily, they didn't have a huge music collection, but... My dad liked his jazz and his classical. They had about five rock records. They had like, I think my dad had Let It Be, the Beatles album. My mum had Motown Childbusters, Volume 3, Jose Feliciana albums, and Elvis Hits album. So, the, you know, and that with maybe I think The Jungle Book. They were the kind of records when I was a kid. Listening to those, and then somewhere in me, there was this sort of, obviously, there was a show-off somewhere. And I can just remember at school, Jumping in front of a mic, sort of doing an Elvis impersonation and kind of a James Brown. I always had this little husk in my voice, even when I was whatever, 11. So I just remember kind of, this is a man's world. And he kind of like, Oh my God, this sort of works. This sort of husky kind of thing. So I was kind of, I guess. You know, one of my early memories was seeing my mum in a play when I was like a tiny toddler and she was worried that I was going to run on the stage, you know. (laughs) I was well behaved and everything. But so piano lessons when I was sort of, I guess, seven. And then that lapsed a little bit. And then when I got to become a teenager, the angst kicked in and somebody was playing a guitar, another kid at school. And so the rock and roll kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of it.
0: (laughs) Gosh, and what about school? Were you at a school that encouraged music?
2: Yeah, I mean, my mum and dad, God knows what was going through their heads, because they, uh, like so many arty people, I moved around a lot. So many different houses, so many different schools, and one extreme to the other. I kind of had a few years of stability in primary school in Down in Devon, in Ashburton, I'd already moved about four times, five times before that. But then in the bookshop that my dad had, mum and dad had, a monk came in and he was the headmaster of a boarding school. My dad thought, oh, this is great. We'll send Jonathan to this, you know, boarding school. And that was disastrous because I was this sort of terribly mummy's boy kind of, I don't know how old I was at this point, probably maybe nine or 10 or something like that. So I was rushed off to that. It was a disaster. I was very sad, very homesick. Then they discovered some other people that were running a progressive school. That was just, you know, everybody it was like Animal Farm, hippie kind of vibes. So I ended up in this progressive school in Ashburn, which was a complete shift away from the <laughs> Catholic school run by monks. And there was obviously a huge ethos on arts and on music. And I just spent a lot of time playing the piano and kind of not necessarily showing up at lessons. So that was a huge part of the idea that maybe I could be an artist or a singer.
0: And do you remember that moment, perhaps when you were a teenager, of thinking, you know what, maybe actually I could make a living out of this?
2: I do kind of remember that sort of slightly self-conscious thing. When I was a teenager, when everyone else was into Nirvana, I was sort of listening to Beatles albums, and I, my parents would give me the cassettes of starters fairly chronologically. So it was sort of really sad for me, because in 1996, the Beatles broke up. You know, it was the last album that I got. It was like, okay, that's the end of the story. But... I remember kind of thinking, well, I could write a song. Why don't I write a song? You know that kind of ridiculous, slightly self-important way you can be, and kind of go, I don't know, I'll write a song. So I did try and write some. I did write some awful songs, you know, in in the nineties, <laughs> but. What happened to me was a little bit like I've heard what happens to stand-up comedians. Sometimes they have a really good gig early on and they think, oh, this is easy. And then they have about a million awful ones after that. So I kind of wrote one of my good songs really, really early. I wrote In Your Light. This is one song that kind of survived. And you know, you write a good one and then you have about (laughs) 50 shit ones after that. But yeah, so I kind of wrote a really good song and thought, okay, I can do this. So that was kind of the beginning. When
1: the sun is gone away In the darkness of the night I don't have to look too hard to see That I'm living in your life
0: really distinctive john and you mentioned that you've had this sort of huskiness
2: in your voice Mm. since
0: the age of about 11 yeah
2: well that was the time that i actually sold myself to the devil at the crossroads (laughs) and uh i don't know i don't know where this husk comes from but early on probably still i get i do get various comparisons one of them is rod stewart i think people just find the husk somewhere i mean the other one is obviously the sting but also Brian Adams. I mean, I, the truth of the matter is, I don't think I sound like these people, but I think it's just the husk, the whiskey-soaked voice.
0: But the whiskey-soaked voice has been brilliant, hasn't it? For your songs, the it's
2: Yeah, it's definitely paid the bills. Well, definitely, yeah. And I'm, maybe I can steal Bob Harris's job as well, you know, for some late night stuff on the radio. I don't know, close mic, do you know? It was weird. Actually, when I started off, I was trying to make my voice cleaner. You know, I was trying to fight the husk, you know, it was because like you said, I was talking about Coldplay and Radiohead. They kind of had these angelic falsetto voices and I was trying. But once I finally embraced this voice of a, of a 90-year-old blues singer, everything seemed to happen. And did you say as well that you were in a band singing covers? I was, yeah. I was actually in a Beatles tribute band. Again, the Beatles thing was huge for me and that was a huge lesson, education. I mean... That was funny in a way because, you know, it was a small town. I was living in a small town in Devon, and there was a guy in Plymouth called Tony Way he was kind of a guy that was retiring from i think he worked for like british telecom or something like that and um he was he wanted to have his own band and he was just a small little guy and he wanted to do mccartney solo which was not the coolest thing particularly and i was a real beatles fan but everyone was like john it's a band get in, you know just make a start get in the band it'll be fine so i kind of got into that we ended up Pushing this guy out of the band, which was deeply traumatic for him. (laughs) And then we sort of did the tribute thing for a while. But that was brilliant for me because I started off playing John Lennon. So I was singing and doing the Lennon stuff. And then I moved over to McCartney and learned to play the bass and sing. So that gave me loads of lessons about kind of performing and playing and, you know, helped me. But eventually I thought, Christ, I want to at some point go on stage without a Scouse accent. This is ridiculous. I have to transcend this, otherwise I'm going to be just like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to carry on now with another song from another LP. You know, so I just had to go, right, look, I'm 20 and I'm already stuck in this, you know, which is great, but there's got to be more to life, right?
0: So given how much you admire and and like the Beatles. It must have been a treat to record recently at Abbey Road.
2: Yes. I mean, there was a guy I know who who was an engineer at Abbey Road, so he got me in there initially first time. That was about 10 years ago. And then I did a a record with a couple of friends of mine that I went to to Lipper with, and they were spending big bucks, these guys. So they got a big string section in into Abbey Road Studio 2, the hallowed ground, as they say.
0: Is Abbey Road where you filmed some of the new album?
2: Because of lockdown, a lot of it was done in, in, a, in a shed in, in North London. That's um, okay, that's yeah. okay. It doesn't really yeah. matter the location. We had reverb also. to make it sound expensive and Did big. Did you? <laughs> but um, yeah, everything was done in a rather lockdowny way. But we would have loved to have gone to Abbey Road but for the next one.
0: <laughs> for the next one, absolutely. So when you were at 20-ish and thought it's time to go out on that stage without a Scouse accent, mm. what was the sort of journey like then to becoming your own artist out there, singing your own stuff?
2: I suppose I had the Beatles thing as a template, so I was always kind of looking for that kind of foil, the other person. That, and also, I, this was around the time Coldplay were huge, Radiohead, you know, There was it was bands, you know, it was around the time, probably the, maybe the 2000 mark. And I really wanted to sort of be in a band and, you know, kind of, it was more of an indie rock vibe then. So we were trying to do that. I'd moved to Liverpool and then we were sort of doing the occasional gig in London dragging people from various corners of the country, you know, that and they were like, John, I, I don't think I can justify going to, you know, a Camden gig for 15 minutes, you know, for, for whatever I'm giving them, 30 quid for their travel expenses, you know, I think this might be it, John, I don't think we can do this anymore. So eventually there was this inevitable sort of sense of like, I think I need to give up on this band thing and just accept my fate as a solo artist, but it was really kind of painful process. And when I finally gave up on the notion of the band, That was kind of it, really. When I was at uni, I got one of my demos reviewed in a magazine in London called Making Music. It probably doesn't exist anymore. And a couple of people in the music business found this thing. There was a manager and a record label. I basically just met with this woman, Trish, who's now unfortunately no longer with us, who who sort of managed me for a while up in London. She was based out of Air Studios in North London and the record label was a guy that was an A&R guy at BMG. So I was really lucky that from Liverpool, from university, I was able to just come to London and kind of start my journey as a solo artist with those few contacts. It was a very long road after that, you know, of kind of singing in toilets in London. But yeah, that was the start.
0: My first vinyl album was Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. That's pretty cool. I think Mark Knopfler is probably one of the finest guitarists present company accepted in the world. And he's played an important part in your life, hasn't
2: he? Yeah, I mean, it was one of my early records as well. You know, I had a cassette with Brothers in Arms on. So another manager that I had, there was a connection with Mark Knopfler. And I met him in Shepherd's Bush at a, somebody's birthday party or something like that. It was like a gig, basically. He was sort of, you know, like Mark Knopfler's here, where, where, he's at Table 7 over there, kind of, you know, there he is, there he is. So I was sort of doing my set, but very aware that this sort of music legend was there, and he was there with his wife and everything. And my manager said, oh, you know, Mark, we'd like to meet you. So we sort of went over to his table and he was very nice and said, oh, he'd like to help. So, yeah, we basically just got out our shopping list of, wouldn't it be great to do a song with Mark? Wouldn't it be great to tour with Mark? Wouldn't it be? <laughs> and he, yep, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll play on the thing and right And... Yeah, it was amazing. And, and we did this tour he was on, he was working with Emily Harris at the time. So we did this tour in the UK, then we went to Europe and we did France. We did, I think we did some other shows in Europe as well. So it was ridiculous, Dream Come Two stuff, you know, Wembley Arena, the Zenith in Paris and, you know. So, yeah, I had to go back to a, probably a damp wall somewhere after that in South London. But I clung on to those moments, definitely.
0: Give us a sense of what it was like to be on stage with him and to work so closely
2: with him. I mean, it's one of those things where you sort of try not to, you try and de-legend it. Do you know what I mean? You try and go, just like I'm with you guys here, I'm trying to play it down, but do you know what I mean? You know, my heart is racing, you know, but it's kind of like you just try and get into a normal footing and... A lot of those people that are big, they're a bit like the Queen. They're very used to kind of calming you down and going, Hi, are you all right? Everything okay? And doing the normal thing, you know. He was very gracious, Mark Knopfler. He just sort of took me under his wing and walked me around when we were doing the gigs and everything. And was a really kind of generous guy. He was great.
0: I've been lucky enough to see him perform live a few times and... What really strikes you when you go to one of his gigs is the quality of the musicianship. Everybody on that stage is superb, aren't they, what they're doing? I'm thinking from the sax players to percussion to the bass players. He works with the best, doesn't he? He puts the best around him.
2: Yeah, and he probably pays well. <laughs> that probably helps. But yeah, I mean, I guess when you get to that point, you can pick and choose your musicians. I think about his journey as well. I mean, he. I think he was a teacher, started out as a teacher, but he has a certain literacy in what he does as well. I always sort of really admire his songwriting and kind of think, God, if I could have some of his poetry, that would be amazing. And also his guitar playing. He plays, I don't know, a lot of people play with a pick, you know, they play with a plastic pick, but he plays with his fingers, so he has this lovely subtlety in the way he kind of plays the guitar. And the second that he hits a note, you know instantly that's Mark Noffley. When I went to his studio in West London to record this song, Sarah, that he played on, you know, I initially had this idea a little bit simplistically, because obviously I I knew Romeo and Juliet and he played this particular sort of steel guitar, and I said, Mark, I want you to play that guitar on this track. He's like, no, John, I'm not going to do that. Well, I can play electric and, no, no, don't play electric, play acoustic." So I sort of, I was a bit younger then. I was a bit more kind of, I'm, you do this, you do that, you know, kind of headstrong, you know, telling him what to do. When he just played, it was just so instant. He's just got this sort of so recognizable style.
1: Now my head is full of questions. Heavy on my mind. And I've been looking for an answer. When there really was no answer to find. Well, my heart feels like an ocean. And I'm just looking for the shore. I knew where I was going, but the truth is I can't feel it anymore. Oh, Sarah, I walked through this misty morning. Sarah, I rode down this lonesome road.
0: You say he's got that recognisable style. Before you arrived, we were playing Sarah and, and you're absolutely right. You can pick Mark Knopfler out on there. Yeah. Was that a sort of big honour for you that he played on one of your
2: pieces as definitely. well as you supporting him? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I don't know, you kind of don't know quite the significance of it at the time, you know, you're just going with everything. And I guess we all have regrets as well with, with our careers and everything. I have some regrets, but he actually said to me kind of, oh, I'd like to record Dead Man's Suit. And I just let that go. That just went, do you know what I mean? I didn't sort of push that. And I just think, oh my God, what the hell, you know? So there've been certain moments where, and I just sort of think about Dead Man's Suit, I sort of thought, oh yeah, he, he could have sort of swing that one. Do you know what I mean? He could have done that, but hey, Mark, you still can, mate, you
1: still can. I bought a dead man's suit I didn't get no change I couldn't take it
0: Let's get him on it. Let's get him on it. Dead Man's Suit is the first, well, first album, but also first track of yours that I ever heard that I am still 100% in love with. And I'd love to hear the backstory to it.
2: Oh my God. Somebody asked me, as sort of an interview question, how do you write songs, John? How do you write songs? And loving the Beatles and kind of maybe possibly leaning towards the melodic thing early on. I always used to start writing from a melodic standpoint. So it would be that kind of vowel sounds. You'd be just... And you'd find a melody and then you'd find a lyric that fitted that emotion. And you thought, oh, well, that's the way you write a song. And then when you're required to write more, you realize, okay, you need other ways to get to their creativity. And Dead Man Suit was one of those ones where it was just literally... Dead Man's Suit. That was the idea. It was, I don't know what it was, going into a charity shop or something like that, but just this idea of this story of this thing. And so it was literally a title. And then everything just sort of grew out of that idea from that word, from that phrase. And it was more of a Dylan kind of aesthetic in a way to sort of write that particular song. And these days I write from melody and I write from words as well. So...
0: And do you see yourself, really, John, as a poet? I mean, is that how the words form in a similar way to poetry?
2: I feel very self-conscious as soon as that word is used. I feel like I want an exit. You know, I feel like it's weird. I mean, I'm in the process of writing again now, and I was sitting on on the train listening to Mary Black, a very famous Irish artist, and I think everybody feels a little bit like, yeah, I mean, it's such a cliché, but that kind of fraud thing... No one quite feels like that they understand how to do it. It's kind of an ongoing thing. So I'd love to de-escalate the whole poet thing. I'd love to just kind of go, I mean, Dylan would always say, I'm a song and dance man, you know, that's good for me. You know, I'm a song and dance man. And if I can turn a phrase, then great. But I don't know, no one really knows what they're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and is it
0: an easy process or a torturous process for you? Or does it just depend where you are in y- your life and what frame of mind you're in when you write?
2: It's easy and torturous, yeah, it's inspiration, there's perspiration, there's many cups of tea, there's much procrastination, there's taking a huge interest in tidying and cleaning, you know, instead of writing. A lot of the time it's the walk to the coffee shop that's the the moment where everything sort of clicks into place when you sort of step away. Because when you're not thinking about it, you're thinking about it. When 80% of your mind is on it, then maybe 20% and you can be free then when you're not fully focused and fully over intense. I mean, I'm sure you're like this with an edit or something with you, you have to step away, to step back, all that kind of stuff.
0: John, you play so many different instruments. When you're writing and composing, which do you use?
2: I write on guitar and I write on piano, but I often go between the two instruments. I'm sure that there are piano players out there that have great rhythm, but generally for me, the rhythm is often more in the guitar. When I'm going for rhythm, I tend to go to guitar. And then when I'm melodically looking for things, I can pick out melodies and things on piano. So that's a really good to and fro that I have in the process, basically, of writing. So I do both.
0: And tell us about Meanwhile, it's your fifth studio album. It's out now. What can the audience, what can the listener expect? (laughs)
2: Laughter, sadness, joy, the full gamut of human emotions. It's kind of weird. I mean, everybody's different, right? Everybody picks out different things that they like on records. And what there is in this is very much the darkness and the light. There's some very sad songs. Funnily enough, I was writing some very dark stuff before lockdown and then when lockdown came I thought I can't subject my audience to this despair this is too much you know everyone's going to jump off bridges and stuff so I was trying to bring in you know I wrote I wrote a song called Western Shore which was about maybe running away to Ireland and kind of feeling the, the sea wind you know and kind of getting away from the slightly cross London and I wrote Can't Hold Back the Sun sort of that was when we were coming out of lockdown one <laughs> thinking this is it we're here so I kind of wrote some more happy stuff so it's a real for better and for Worse. It's a really eclectic record. You know, for those people that just want to have a misery memoir, it's not quite that, but you can edit it on Spotify. Make your misery record. It can be half the length or make your joy record. It's got bombast. It's got intimate acoustic
1: tracks. It's, it's got it all, big. Sooner or later the evening turns to black Sooner or later that culture throws you back and you curse the time you ever felt the sun When you find out you're wrong Love's illusion, yeah, love's the sweetest lie, Like the way we used to kiss and close our eyes when you think that it's the long road that you're on And you find out you're wrong, Burning bridges is all I ever do The kind of hurt I'm feeling now is nothing new when you try to love somebody on the run And you find out you
0: maybe this is a naive question, but when you write the darker songs, are they reflecting how you might be feeling at the time? Are you always it's writing possible. from the heart? <laughs> she says, it's trying possible. to tread it's carefully. Possible. Yeah,
2: it's possible that there is some correlation between my inner world and the world, As you know. I mean, obviously, that's a dangerous game because I'm trying to live a relatively stable life and thinking to myself, I don't want to be in anguish for, for every single waking moment. Is this my life? Do I have to be you know, feeling visceral pain or even visceral joy at all times? How about just comfortably numb or <laughs> whatever the expression is? So I think you do draw on what's going on. I think it is just, as Van Morrison just said in a recent track, it's only a song you know. as well. You know, sometimes you just got to make the damn thing right. Well, if time as a teacher
1: seems like I never learned, right now I feel like I'm down, that the world ever turn oh it's a Hollywood ending, to think that we could be friends, cause I've been through all of the rushes and I know how it ends. It's a cruel world It's a cruel world It's a desolate view It's a cruel world It's a cruel world It's a cruel world without you I'm in love with the sadness it's the devil I know Now there's nowhere I'm going. It's why I'm walking so
2: slow. I know so it is playful play. as well. you know it's just it's finding some poetry, it's finding a melody. it's getting outside yourself too.
0: What happened when you got a phone call to say that one of your tracks was required for a Land Rover advert? Tell me that story.
2: I just started picking out yachts. I mean, you know, that was what happened. You know, so this is it, guys. Monaco, here we come. Well, it was a weird one. The strange thing is the things that I've... Really, maybe this says something about life itself, but the things that I've really gone after generally haven't come. And the things that I've been really like late to have happened, you know, the guy, that, the head of music at BBC, who wanted to put me on later with Jules Holland, I was late, you know, I was coming to a check and I was late for this guy. So I showed up, obviously he thought this guy's too cool. Do you know what I mean? I'm just, I was just late with Jules Holland, you know, but I was actually away. I'd come back from New York and I was supposed to meet with the people from Land Rover and I overslept. And because i just got off a flight so people actually came around to my house in Streatham and they were banging on my door John the Land Rover guys they're here they're here I was you know it's fast asleep so I threw a pair of trousers on got over to Ballam to my producer's house and met with the guys sang the bit of the the song and you know it happened so again they probably thought God who is this guy he's so cool basically when I'm dreaming normally things happen I
1: have had my share of leaving, I have walked this world alone. Now I hear your voice a-calling. I can see the lights of home. And though the way just keeps on winding, never days a changing view. Down the line, I keep on finding this old road leads me back to you.
0: How did it feel when you watched the adverts and it's it's you
2: on it? It's kind of a slightly out of body experience. I mean, it sort of taps into who I am, which is a bit of a neurotic. So I'm always sort of checking, is it okay? You know, that's the main thing. Is it, is it sounding as it should? I remember the first time I was driving in the morning and I heard In Your Light and Terry Wogan saying, oh, that's a lovely song there. And it's great. And I'm experiencing so many multiple emotions. One of them is, oh my God, it's amazing. The other one is, is there enough bass? Is it okay? Is it in tune? You know what I mean? So it's kind of joyful, but at the same time, I've still got that slightly analytical person talking to me going, is this all right? And it's a beautiful song, isn't it, going home? Thank you. That's the reaction, right? Thank you. Thank you. And what's the story behind it? Well, it's a kind of a weird one. I had a melody It was just one of those things where the guy that produced my records worked in that world of advertising as well. And they needed something that had a, quote, Nick Drake vibe. So it just came really easy. It was a song that was sort of happening already and it just sort of all clicked together really, really. It really was fast, that one.
0: Since your days with a cassette player and vinyl the music world's changed hasn't it like everything else it's changed very quickly and now we're very much in a Shazam and Spotify world music's on tap all the time we can have whatever we want playing in our headphones on the tube or on a bus or whatever what have things like Spotify done for your music has it been a help has it been a hindrance how does the music scene work now for an artist
2: certainly for me it is sort of all about Spotify in a way I grew up with albums you know I grew up thinking about things in terms of albums I have heard people say the album is dead you know maybe it is in a certain way you know maybe we're returning to this notion of everything's gone full circle back to singles back to these little adverts for music but I think in so many ways it is actually a huge freedom Spotify and I think the great thing about Spotify and other streaming services is that you can kind of find your niche with it you know you can find There are people out there that want that particular thing musically and you don't have to necessarily fight as hard for the Radio 2s and things like that. You know, if you don't necessarily have a hugely commercial track, you can still find an audience in the streaming world, you know. So I think it is great. I know we're not making the money. You know, I'm making 0000006 p per play and it's not great yet, but I think we can't blame the audience for the way they consume their music. And I think it is the future, definitely.
0: What next for you, John, now? Back out there, albums out, what next?
2: Well, funny you should mention Spotify, but it's it's kind of, you know, I sort of jokingly, it's a little bit like, because I've made an album, my numbers have gone in a good direction. So, but now it's sort of like going down again. So it's kind of, oh my God, oh my God, got to do something, got to do something. So it's, it's make another song. And it's all very old school. It's all very got to do another song, just one song. So I'm actually just working on new material to, to release, you know, I'm going to do some more singles, I think, next
0: fantastic it's been brilliant that you've had time to come and so nice to just hang out in person isn't it It makes it such a big difference for me recording this kind of thing but it's been very nice to see you and um, yeah good luck with the new album and uh, it's called meanwhile so i hope lots of people who are listening to our podcast will uh, enjoy it and download it thanks You've been listening to singer songwriter John Allen. Do check out his new album. Meanwhile, it really is well worth the listeners. John said there is absolutely something for everyone there, full of various emotions. Thanks very much for your company today. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.pobbean.com or search the Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or just ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest. So bye for now. It's
1: been too cold.